Good morning, brothers and sisters. I've been around Calvin College and Calvin Seminary for very, very many years. And my family, too. Um, my dad was a prophet, Calvin, starting in 1950. And since then, continuously, there's been a member of my nuclear family on that campus. So I guess you could say we're Calvin people. In Mark 4, uh, Jesus tells the story of the parable, this tells the parable of the sower, and about the right hearing of his teaching in parables. And then in verse 21, he said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is brought, meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And even more, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You see online, or you read someplace, every once in a while, the story of an unemployed worker who has just won the state lottery. Since he was fired by his boss, he's been drawing unemployment compensation, and just as it's running out, he wins $105 million. Now he can pay off all of his debts, appear smiling on local TV news, buy a Cadillac or two, drop by the plant to tell his old boss to take a long walk, and retire splendidly to Hawaii at age 38. Now the fun begins, but also some trouble. A great deal of money can be all gotten all at once can be too much for some folks to handle. A 40-year holiday that begins in the prime of life isn't necessarily a recipe for happiness. There are some studies that show this along with the winner's new wealth, come new problems, new taxes, fair number of new relatives. But even more to the point, lottery winners, sweepstakes winners, surprise heirs of fortunes aren't nearly always poor and thrifty. The odd thing is that winners are sometimes already prosperous people, comfortably fixed, occasionally, a lottery winner is a previous lottery winner. And then when people read about who won, they shake their heads and say, oh boy, to those who have, will more be given. How odd to notice that they are quoting Jesus. This hard saying comes from our Lord of all people. And the saying gets even harder when you quote it completely, to those who have will more be given, and from those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And on first hearing, it certainly doesn't sound very fair. In fact, it sounds outrageous. Does our Lord suppose that we ought to send care packages to the most expensive apartments in New York? while cutting off aid to dependent children, sponsor big tax breaks for the wealthiest professional baseball players and 
rip up the bleacher tickets of their poorest spectators, subsidize Las Vegas casinos and foreclose on struggling widows? What kind of a saying is this? Everybody knows the rich tend to get richer and the poor tend to get poorer, but it's the sort of thing most decent people lament, not the kind of thing they expect our Lord to bless. Years ago, a learned colleague of Paul Tillich, Paul Tillich was a German-American theologian of the 20th century whose sayings were so dark that they are thought to have bewildered Tillich himself. A theologian called up Paul Tillich and wanted to know about this text. He read Mark 4.25 to Paul Tillich and demanded to know how such an unjust thing as this ever found its way into the scriptures. Well, it's not recorded what Tillich replied, but if he was in good form that day, he likely said something like, here we have both an essential and an existential dynamic merged in the concrete self-transcendent ambiguity of the now. What Tillich should have said is that it's not at all clear that Jesus approves of this situation where wealth is concerned. In fact, it seems that Jesus was quoting a proverb already in existence during his time that originally was about money. Somebody observed that a wealthy money lender, loan shark, we'd call him today, a loan shark could gain enormous profits with his interest, and a poor peasant to whom he loaned money was cursed by bad weather and poor harvests would have to pay back his last penny. And this observer of the human scene would say, you see, to those who have will more be given from those who do not have. Even what they have will be taken from them. Wealth begets wealth. It takes money to make money and so on. It's all true, and we know it's true, and Jesus knew it was true, but it so happens that Jesus is not talking about money at all. Jesus uses this proverb, which was originally about money, to make another point altogether. The setting for this saying is the right hearing of Jesus' teaching in parables. And the point is that we either make good use of the revelation from God in Christ that we receive, or else it'll dry up. Or, like an unexercised muscle, it will atrophy. We either use the revelation of God in Christ or it will just wither inside of us. It's like the ability to play the piano. Once upon a time, you were taking lessons and you were practicing and you could play the March of the Candy Soldiers, but now you don't practice anymore. And so those soldiers have all lost their way and you can't play. Or a friendship that you once invested in, that you no longer invest in, has now shriveled. On the other hand, it's also possible to strengthen our gifts. That's why athletes train. That's why musicians practice. That's why caring spouses invest themselves in their marriage. 
And Jesus is saying, it's just like this with our faith. It's all about momentum. Our faith ought to move from grace to grace, becoming a stronger magnet all the time for people who want to come to Christ. Stronger in those dark times when it seems like nothing means anything anymore. There is in our Christian faith good momentum and bad momentum. A virtuous circle and a vicious circle. And all because to those who have will more be given. And from those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And so we have to pay attention to the gift of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Either you and I grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord, or else our knowledge dims and our vision of God clouds over and our love grows cold. And I think we know how this momentum process works. Good momentum begins with really hearing a word from God and thinking, yes, there's, there's something to this. You hear a good word from Scripture and something in you lifts and straightens out. The gospel seems alive to you. You make your first attempts, adult attempts, to pray. And at first it's awkward, like learning to dance. But pretty soon you find your groove. And now you don't want to miss your prayers. They are part of your daily life. Your momentum builds. You feel good momentum in the community of Christians, and for, for the first time you care what the church is doing. You become much more alert to the assumptions in our society, right ones and wrong ones, in the things you read, the things you see online, the things you see on TV. You notice how often people running for office claim to know the motives of their opponents and how seldom they put the best face on them, and it troubles you. Good spiritual momentum. You begin to care about injustice, and you feel restless and unhappy about it. You no longer sneer at do-gooders. You find in general that your Christian faith means more and more to you. God seems to you alive and present. The Christ who walked among us seems to walk with you. The world seems full of windows open on that unspeakable reality that lies beyond this one, and you feel bathed in its glory. You begin to see that the most important thing about life is not how much money you have or how popular you are or how popular your friends are or even in any ordinary sense how happy you are. You begin to see that what matters most to you is that you have union with Jesus Christ, your Savior. The momentum is building. You discover that you are able to draw joy from small occasions and simple things. And you discover gratitude. And then you discover that gratitude is a powerful engine of joy. Of course, you have some headaches at home and at work, and in the church. 
There are obstacles to get over, difficult people to deal with, all of it true. And for some of us, quite difficult things to deal with. Still, you have to say that deeply and centrally, what matters most to you is that the love of God has you in his hands and that nothing can ever rip you out of his grasp. All because to those who have will more be given, both in this life and in the life that is to come. Sad to say, bad momentum is a fact of human spiritual life too. And we know how that goes as well. Thousands and thousands of people all over the world have been born into Christian families or adopted into them and then baptized and have just slipped away. And some of us recall times when we ourselves were slipping. Prayer means less and less to you. It feels like a chore. You wonder why, if God is there, he is so emphatically silent. You don't think God is real, so you don't pray. You don't pray, so you don't think God is real. Bad momentum is building. The Bible seems to you dull, or else it seems a product of fantasy. You look at the Christian church, and all you see is hypocrites. Church people do know how to talk, but they also know how to sin, and they seem to do it with the same zest as everybody else. Church. Hocus-pocus sermons with great sedative powers. People squabbling about music and the style in which we ought to adore God, glaring at each other about adoring God in a different style. All of it seems so dreary. You can't wait to get out. Bad momentum. You find yourself believing worldly propaganda. You learn pride and envy. You open up shallow, self-seeking relationships with other shallow, self-seeking people. You find yourself thinking that honesty is for losers. Promise-keeping is for fogies. The pursuit of goodness strikes you now as a quaint hobby, maybe something like stagecoach repair. Bad momentum is building. You push all ultimate questions out of your mind and you drift. You do something sleazy and you defend yourself by saying, everybody does it. I'm only human. You hunker down with your creature comforts and you go through the motions at work and then about every Labor Day weekend, you start to review and wonder. So I sleep and eat and work and eat and watch TV and sleep and eat and work and eat and watch TV and sleep and then repeat this over and over and over until one day my kidneys quit or my heart stops. And that was my life. 
Your family seems to live in their own world as you do in yours. Who can understand kids these days? The insolent little critters? They seem like strangers. And your spouse, how in the folly of youth did you get hooked into this arrangement? And how now with a minimum of fuss can you get unhooked? You lurch through midlife crisis. You take up yoga or yogurt, trying to prove you're not a spent force. You discover that you can be young only once, but you can be immature indefinitely. And you begin to wonder really what good human living is. Increasingly, you're aware that whatever comes, a comfortable living, a marriage, a retirement, the respect of your friends, most of it is pretty shaky. All of it, in fact, can be called into question some Thursday afternoon when a dreaded diagnosis comes back from a pathology lab. And you understand that it never fully satisfied you anyhow, not deep down where you really live. And you learn what people mean by the word despair and why over the gates of hell, medieval poets said there is a sign. It says, abandon all hope, you who enter here. And all because from those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now the word of our Lord in Ivan Rest Church this morning expects its response from us. Of course, the big explosion that gets our flywheel turning in the right direction, that's all a movement of God's grace. And at every stage, we are nudged forward, led on, encouraged by the grace of God. I know that. But there is something we are called to do too. The word is very old. It's as old as the time that Adam and Eve rebelled against God and tried to find happiness outside him. The word to us is this. Repent. Turn. Believe the gospel. Remember who has his fingerprints all over you and who longs for you and wants you to unite with him again. Many of us know what it's like to speak the name of Jesus Christ and yet to lose for a time all the freshness, all the urgency, all the aliveness of our relationship with him. How easily we can become professional Christians. We've all had such times and we've all discovered during such times that it was not God who had gone away. It was not God who left the watchtower. We ourselves were wandering in some far country where there is no food for our soul and no drink for our thirst. 
Brothers and sisters, when we come back from the far country, we discover what every prodigal son and daughter discovers, that it is God who is waiting for us, longing to embrace us, to cloak us with his love, to welcome us home, and to celebrate with us at the heavenly banquet. Jesus says, to those who have shall more be given from those who do not have. Even what they have shall be taken from them. If there is anyone in this room who has ears to hear, listen. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners and grant us your peace. Amen.